I feel inclined to issue a little warning before we begin. This episode contains some graphic descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised, especially if you often listen to podcasts when there are young children within earshot. While I have put this up as an official bonus episode of Song and Story, it's a little different than what longtime listeners of this podcast are accustomed to. About a year ago, on the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, August 6th, I wrote a lengthy article that chronicled the evolution of my thoughts on the morality of nuclear war. I published the article on my website, kevinheider.com. If you know someone who isn't really into podcasts, but you think they might appreciate this, I've included a link to the original article in the show notes. For the most part, any changes I've made here to that original article are enhancements. Where I could find them and where they fit, I've used actual historical audio recordings from the archives of many of the quotes in the article. I'm going to tell you what made me want to write a song about the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, what happened after I released that song, and how I eventually learned to start worrying and stop justifying the bomb. Now, as I take you through my own evolution on this issue, I will make appeals to presidents and popes. I do not presume that everyone listening to this accepts or assents to the moral authority of the historical players I appeal to here. Perhaps you're an anarchist. Perhaps you're not particularly fond of organized religion or religious institutions who make claims on moral authority. So for the sake of this examination of our collective conscience, all I ask is that you listen and consider the substance of what is said, that you measure the moral arguments and appeals I make on their merits. On July 16th, 1945, The atomic age is born. A scientific thunderbolt gives a preview of its destructive force. Twenty-one days after the New Mexico dress rehearsal, a lone B-29 was over Hiroshima carrying an atomic bomb. The bomb is dropped. The aircraft banks away at high speed. Just 50 seconds later, 15 miles from ground zero, the Enola Gay is rocked by the blast. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. 
the force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the far east. We shut them the hell up. That was the closing line of my argument. I was in high school, circa 2002. We were having a debate in history class concerning the morality of the use of the atomic bomb on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. I had opted to stand on the side of, yes, the bomb was right, just, and necessary. Most of my arguments were simplistic regurgitations of every talking point about the bomb that I had heard growing up. But that last line of my argument, that final punch, we shut them the hell up. That was my own intellectual contribution. What a closer, I thought, certain that the emotional weight of it would render all other arguments moot. But the moment I said it, doubt crept in. Was that arrogant? Was that prideful? Should I have said it? Is, is that how an argument should be won? I mean, even if it was necessary to win the war, it was a tragedy, and tens of thousands of men, women, and children died, right? I still thought I was on the right side of history, to be sure. It's just that, well, maybe that final punch crossed the line. Then the opposition walked to the front of the class to make their case and offer a rebuttal. Their main presenter was an Asian-American student who had been my classmate since middle school. Clearly, my choice of words had shaken him up. It felt personal to him, and he seemed to be on the verge of tears as he addressed my comment specifically. While I hid any outward expression of shame or remorse, I started to feel that what I had said was an awful thing to say. Even though I was still convinced by my own litany of consequentialist arguments, I began to recognize that my filter was off. My comment and my classmates' heartfelt rebuke of it stuck with me. And for the next decade, I went back and forth on the issue ad nauseum. I'd take a conscious step toward empathy, contemplate the humanity lost, and be decidedly against the bomb. Then someone would remind me of all the American lives that could have been lost otherwise, and I'd be decidedly for the bomb. I'd watch a documentary on World War II, see images of the charred and permanently disfigured humans who somehow survived the blast, and I'd be decidedly against the bomb. Then an older relative would remind me over Thanksgiving dinner that I wasn't alive back then, and so I couldn't possibly understand what was at stake, and that I probably wouldn't even be alive today had the bomb not been used, and, again, I'd be decidedly for the bomb. Then, during my last two years of college, every time I visited or passed by my professor's office, I'd see that annoying quote from the Pope posted on her door. War is always a defeat for humanity, it read. And I'd think, who knows what's right? The world's greatest minds in science, statecraft, and military matters are wrestling with the problems created by the atom. On this spot, outlined in stone, is a figure representing the average man 
regardless of his race or creed. These atomic footprints on the sands of time can never be erased. They point a path which leads to unparalleled progress or unparalleled destruction. Just as in the darkness of the desert morning when the atomic age was born, atomic power puts the question squarely to mankind. A few years after graduating from college, singing, songwriting, performing, and refining my ability to tell a compelling story through the art of song had become a full-time endeavor. And for whatever reason, the moral questions of history and the problem of violence as it exists today increasingly became sources of inspiration and introspection, subjects I could explore and wrestle with through my art. In the fall of 2010, a friend recommended that I read an old tract titled War is a Racket. It was written by Smedley Butler, a retired Marine Corps general, in between World Wars I and II. Having received two Congressional Medals of Honor, among other accolades, Butler was the most decorated veteran in U.S. history when he wrote this in 1935. Secretly, each nation is studying and perfecting newer and ghastlier means of annihilating its foes wholesale. Yes, ships will continue to be built, for the shipbuilders must make their profits, and guns still will be manufactured, and powder and rifles will be made, for the munitions-makers must make their huge profits, and the soldiers, of course, must wear uniforms, for the manufacturer must make their war profits, too. But victory or defeat will be determined by the skill and ingenuity of our scientists. If we put them to work making poison gas and more and more fiendish mechanical and explosive instruments of destruction, they will have no time for the constructive job of building greater prosperity for all peoples. Written seven years before the Manhattan Project officially began, these words prompted me to reconsider the moral question of the bomb yet again. But I was exhausted from a decade of flying back and forth on the matter. So I held up Smedley's prophetic warning of a ghastlier means of annihilating foes wholesale, and the Pope's annoying war is always a defeat for humanity side by side. And I said, I don't know. I don't know what's right. But if it's true that war, even when it is justly and necessarily waged for the ultimate restoration of peace, is always a defeat for humanity, then the bomb, too, even if its use was just and necessary, was a defeat for humanity, the likes of which the world had never seen and which I do not ever want the world to see again. And that's it. That's the perspective from which I wrote Enola's Wake. Right or wrong, I don't ever want humanity to be so defeated again that it sees no other way out of defeat than to vaporize entire civilian populations in seconds. I don't ever want such planes to fly again. 
And so I sing, sleep Enola, sleep and don't ever wake up. I'm sad to have known you and the death that your life was made of. So sleep Enola, sleep and don't ever wake up. I'm sad to have known you and the death that your life was made of. The song plays as a bitter eulogy to a wretched woman at her wake, but the woman is actually the airplane known as the Enola Gay, the B-29 superfortress that dropped the world's first atomic bomb on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. She was a strong bird and oh could she fly, steady and swift and true. When she married that fat man, I turned a blind eye. Oh, I shuddered when she said I do. The first friend that I played the song for after I wrote it was a fellow history nerd, so I knew he'd get it. He described it as an apocalyptic drinking song, and he was actually the one who recommended that I use the phrase, the virtue of progress an obscure G.K. Chesterton reference, I think, somewhere in the song. And so the first verse was amended. Her passing was quick and quite a surprise To everyone under the sun As the devil's a catchy tune in disguise The virtue of progress was won As the devil's a catchy tune in disguise the virtue of progress was won. It was upon the inclusion of that phrase in the first verse that the work finally felt coherent and complete to me. But after I officially released the song and the album, a funny thing happened. I was confronted, in person and quite unexpectedly, about Enola's wake. I was rebuked for the song's clear message of nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament. I was told that I had it all wrong, and that I didn't understand, and that it was arrogant of me to criticize difficult decisions made by my forefathers from my privileged position in the distant and peaceful present. Well, but wait, hold on, that's not necessarily what the song is saying, I responded sheepishly, wholly unsure of myself or anything. Yet there I was, once again confronted with the need to take a position on this problem that had plagued my conscience for over a decade. But this time, saying, I don't know, then throwing up my hands in surrender to the moral ambiguity, wasn't good enough. So I dove in. I dove into the history, to the humanity, to the witness of archived footage, photographs, and the testimony of survivors, to moral, ethical, and philosophical arguments for and against that I'd heard or used myself over the years. I dove in to confront those annoying paradigm-poking words from the Pope that war is always a defeat for humanity. 
and I wondered if my church had anything equally annoying to say about the bomb in particular. And I found this. Paragraph 2314 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church reads, quote, Every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and man, which merits firm and unequivocal condemnation. A danger of modern warfare is that it provides the opportunity to those who possess modern scientific weapons, especially atomic, biological, or chemical weapons, to commit such crimes. End quote. Then I found these words, spoken by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen in 1974. Going further than simply calling the bomb a moral evil in and of itself, Sheen saw it as the root cause of a new kind of corrosive and unrestrained individualism. And this is what he said. See how much the world has changed? Now, what made it change? I think maybe we can pinpoint a date. 8.15 in the morning, the 6th of August, 1945. It was the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima in Japan. When we flew an American plane over this Japanese city and dropped the atomic bomb on it, we blotted out boundaries. There was no longer a boundary between the civilian and the military, between the helper and the helped, between the wounded and the nurse and the doctor, between the living and the dead. For even the living who escaped the bomb were already half dead. So, we broke down boundaries and limits. And from that time on, the world has said, we want no one limiting me. And I kept digging. I read Dorothy Day's open letter to President Truman, published in The Catholic Worker in September 1945. Dorothy had been disturbed by news reports that President Truman was, quote, jubilant, after the bomb's success in Hiroshima, and she wrote a scathing, convicting letter in response. Mr. Truman was jubilant. President Truman, true man. What a strange name, come to think of it. We refer to Jesus Christ as true God and true man. Truman is a true man of his time in that he was jubilant. It is to be hoped they are vaporized, our Japanese brothers. Scattered, men, women, and babies to the four winds over the seven seas. Perhaps we will breathe their dust into our nostrils. Feel them in the fog of New York on our faces. Feel them in the rain on the hills of Easton. But our Lord himself has already pronounced judgment on the atomic bomb. When James and John wished to call down fire from heaven on their enemies, Jesus said, You know not of what spirit you are. The Son of Man came not to destroy souls, but to save. 
He said also, What you do unto the least of these my brethren, you do unto me. Still I kept digging, and it was then that I discovered Father George Zabelka, who, even in death, continues to be a tremendous thorn in my side for his proclivity to Christian nonviolence. His words are thoughtful, challenging, and paradigm-shifting, and his personal history with the bomb is truly unique. As Plough writes, quote, Father George Zabelka, a Catholic chaplain with the U.S. Air Force, served as a priest for the airmen who dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945 and gave them his blessing. Days later, he counseled an airman who had flown a low-level reconnaissance flight over the city of Nagasaki shortly after the detonation of Fat Man. The man described how thousands of scorched, twisted bodies writhed on the ground in the final throes of death, while those still on their feet wandered aimlessly in shock, flesh seared, melted, and falling off. The crewman's description raised a stifled cry from the depths of Zabelka's soul. My God, what have we done? In the wake of the immediate blast and the fires that continued to burn throughout the city on the morning of August 6, 1945, the casualties in Hiroshima alone are estimated at 135,000. These images, included in the article, compare aerial photographs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively, before and after the bomb was dropped. It's surreal to contrast the busyness of life before with the emptiness of death after. For perspective, while the Allied bombing raids that destroyed Tokyo, Dresden, Essen, and so many others each involved hundreds of planes dropping thousands of bombs, the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki each required only a single plane dropping a single bomb. That's how significant the decision to use these bombs was in the course of human history. And the bombs that have since replaced the most destructive bombs that have ever been used are estimated to be 1,000 times more powerful. It's mind-boggling. It's mass destruction, unprecedented in its efficiency. The virtue of progress for men set on using their God-given creative capacity thus. This is why I sing, her family will live on long after her passing. They'll grow bigger and stronger than she. Her family will live on long after her passing. They'll grow bigger and stronger than she. So pull out your rosaries and lift up your glasses and pray hard and Her passing was rough 
as she screamed in her bed. And I prayed that our souls would be fine. Cause Enola's wake left everyone dead. It's only There's another line in the middle of the song. It goes, The light that she brought us was no light at all, and I say that in full confidence. When someone we love dies, we tend to speak of the goodness and the light that they brought into our world and into our lives. But the light that Enola brought us, the literal flash of the atom bomb, there was nothing good about it. Here's how a Jesuit priest living on the outskirts of Hiroshima, four miles from the epicenter of the blast, described the light that he saw. I was in my room, which faces the valley, and suddenly I saw a light, like magnesium light, flashlight, which uh, filled the whole valley. And looking out of my window to find out the reason for this peculiar phenomena, I saw nothing besides this light. And turning uh, uh, from the window to the door of my room, I heard a crash. It may, be, it may have been 10 seconds uh, after seeing the light, the flashlight. And immediately I was covered with splinters of the window frames and glass sticking uh, into the walls and actually in my flesh itself. After a while, we saw a procession of people coming from the outskirts of the city up the valley. Uh, Many of them, most of them, were wounded, uh, especially the parts of the body which were not covered by uh, clothes, like hands, feet, uh, back, all of us who lived uh, to this exper- experience at the spot estimate the numbers of dead at least as 100,000. In a speech titled Blessing the Bombs, given on the 40th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Father Zabelka reflected on his time as chaplain of the Tinian Air Force Base. Quote, The destruction of civilians in war was always forbidden by the church. And if a soldier came to me and asked if he could put a bullet through a child's head, I would have told him, absolutely not. That would be mortally sinful. But in 1945, Tinian Island was the largest airfield in the world. Three planes a minute could take off from it around the clock. Many of these planes went to Japan with the express purpose of killing not one child or one civilian, but of slaughtering hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of children and civilians. And I said nothing. I never preached a single sermon against killing civilians to the men who were doing it. I was brainwashed. The Enola Gaze mission starts from Tinian in the Marianas. The crew has had their final briefing on weather and air-sea rescue. Only yesterday they have been told of the true power of the weapon they are to carry. The massive bomb has been loaded. 
2.45 in the morning, August 6, 1945, Colonel Tibbets takes the Enola Gay down the runway into the air, beginning the six and one half hour flight to Japan. Civilian casualties are to be expected in war. Everyone knows this. Some use it as an argument against war. Others use it to dismiss arguments against war. However one regards the term, within the context of war, casualties always refers to persons. Now, aside from obviously being more expeditious, it is certainly more palatable to use the broad category of casualty rather than person-to-person particulars like dead six-year-old boy, no skin, or maimed mother of five, now a mother of just one, or baby, approximately ten months old, charred to the bone. In his hauntingly beautiful book, A Song for Nagasaki, about Nagasaki survivor Takashi Nagai, Paul Glynn dives into the particulars of casualties. Chapters 19 and 20 are titled, respectively, When the Sun Turned Black and And the Rain Turned to Poison. In these chapters, Glynn recounts the personal experiences of survivors at various locations in the city in horrific detail. This is how Glynn described the scene from the schoolyard. Midori's 19-year-old cousin, Sadako Moriyama, had just found her two small brothers chasing dragonflies in the Yamazoto schoolyard. She told them their mother wanted them, and at that moment she heard the plane and ran with them to the school shelter. As they entered, they were picked up and hurled to the far wall, and she blacked out. Coming to, she heard the two children whimpering at her feet and wondered why it was so dark. As a little light began to penetrate the gloom, she was paralyzed with terror. Two hideous monsters had appeared at the shelter's entrance, making croaking noises and trying to crawl in. As the darkness lifted a little, she saw they were human beings who had been outside when the bomb exploded. In less than seconds, they had been skinned alive half a mile from the epicenter, and their raw bodies had been picked up and smashed into the side of the shelter. She went outside. The light was weak, as if it were barely dawn. She cried aloud when she saw beside the sandbox four children without clothes or skin. She stood there transfixed, her eyes involuntarily drinking in the hideous details. The skin of their hands had been torn away at the wrists and hung from their fingernails, looking like gloves turned inside out. Feeling she was losing her reason, she dashed back into the shelter, accidentally brushing the two victims still squirming and moaning near the entrance. Their bodies felt like potatoes gone rotten. Their horrible animal croaking sound began again. She realized they were saying something. Misu, Misu, water, water. That cry 
was to run like a cracked record in the nightmares of Nagasaki survivors for years. And this is the scene as Glenn describes it from the air raid shelter. Nagasaki was now burning, and Saku Kawasaki sat in disbelief inside the Abaraji air raid shelter. He could see people staggering about outside, naked and swollen like pumpkins. Then came a babble of croaking voices, piteously begging from Misu, Misu, but where could he get water? There was a puddle of dirty water outside the entrance to the shelter, and one of the victims crawled over, lowered his lips into it, and drank with succulent noises. He tried to crawl to the shelter, but collapsed and stopped moving. One by one, the others drank from the puddle and crumpled up motionless. What terrible thirst could drive men to act like demented lemmings? And then Glynn describes the scene from the safety of home. Michiko Ojino was ten years old and enjoying the summer holidays at home. Just after 11 a.m., she was terrified by a giant lightning flash, followed by a horrendous roar. And within seconds, she was one of the thousands pinned under the roofs or walls of their homes. Michiko was hopelessly pinned there, but her screaming brought a stranger who freed her. Outside, she was startled to see evil-looking clouds that twisted and writhed and blackened out the sun. What kind of new lightning had done this? Then she became conscious of a tiny voice becoming hysterical. It was her two-year-old sister, trapped under a crossbeam. She turned for help and saw dashing toward them a naked woman, her body greasy and purple like an eggplant and her hair reddish-brown and frizzled. Oh no, it was mother. The speechless Michiko could only point to her sister under the beam. The mother looked wildly at the fires that had already started, dived into the rubble, put her shoulder under the beam, and heaved. The two-year-old was free, and the mother, hugging her to her breast, collapsed onto the ground. There was no skin left on the shoulder that she had put under the beam, just raw, bleeding meat. Michiko's father appeared, badly burnt, too. He watched in dumb helplessness as his wife groaned and struggled to rise. Then all her strength ebbed away, and she collapsed, dead. And this is how Glynn describes the destruction of Urakami Cathedral. Inside Urakami Cathedral, fathers Nishida and Tamaya were hearing confessions again, after the all-clear. The cathedral was only a third of a mile from where Fat Man detonated, and was reduced to rubble in an instant. No one would be sure how many perished inside. While the carnage and destruction suffered by both cities was horrific, the bombing of Nagasaki carries with it an extra sting, as Father Zabelka noted. Quote, 
The bombing of Nagasaki means even more to me than the bombing of Hiroshima. By August 9, 1945, we knew what that bomb would do, but we still dropped it. We knew that agonies and sufferings would ensue, and we also knew, at least our leaders knew, that it was not necessary. The Japanese were already defeated. End quote. The Japanese were already defeated, and many of our leaders did know that the bomb was not necessary. Japan had been requesting terms of surrender for some time prior to our use of the bombs. President Eisenhower confirmed this in 1963, stating that, quote, the Japanese were ready to surrender, and it wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. He added, quote, I hated to see our country be the first to use such a weapon. And his was not the only voice of dissent among the military command. Admiral William Leahy was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during World War II. Writing in his memoirs a few years after the war, he said, quote, The use of this barbarous weapon at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender. In being the first to use it, we had adopted an ethical standard common to the barbarians of the Dark Ages. I was not taught to make war in that fashion, and wars cannot be won by destroying women and children. End quote. But the U.S. was bound and determined that only total and unconditional surrender was acceptable. One could argue that this policy, in effect, prolonged our war with Japan. And if one argues that, then the seemingly cynical words of Admiral William Bull Halsey find a troubling credence. Halsey acknowledged that, quote, the first atomic bomb was an unnecessary experiment. He said that it may well have been used because, quote, the scientists had this toy and they wanted to try it out. So they dropped it, end quote. So they dropped it. And then they dropped another. And after the second one devastated Nagasaki, a battered Takashi Nagai returned to his home in search of his wife, Midori. All he found in the rubble and ruins, Glenn writes in a song for Nagasaki, was a, quote, black lump with little more than the charred remains of her skull, hips, and backbone. Nagai picked up the pieces of his wife, put them in a pail, sobbed, prayed, then walked to the cemetery to find a place to bury what was left of her. All of these tragic and horrific scenes are but a microcosm of the suffering humanity I didn't know I was referring to when, in the ignorance and arrogance of my youth, I stood a proud, blind patriot before my class and proclaimed, We shut them the hell up. That was then. And now, I beg in earnest with words from the 25th Psalm, Lord, Remember not the sins of my youth. Opposition to the bomb isn't new. 
it cannot be reduced to presentism. It's simply easier for more people to see more clearly without the fog of war clouding our collective moral consciousness that mass destruction of civilian populations is not okay. My own evolution on this issue has been long and challenging. Maybe my journey resonates with your own. Maybe you're still on the fence. Maybe you think me a naive fool. Maybe you think that it's useless to waste time arguing about something that happened 75 years ago because it's over and done with and we have bigger fish to fry now. I see this criticism of the discourse raised on social media annually when the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are remembered and argued about for a few days every August. And what concerns me about it is this. If one can't see how or why some action of the past was unjust, immoral, wrong, regardless of popular opinion or approval ratings at the time, it will be much more difficult to discern the actions of the present with a concerted moral consistency and or to prevent such things from happening again. As that pesky Pope John Paul II said, on his visit to Hiroshima in 1981. To remember the past is to commit oneself to the future. To remember Hiroshima is to abhor nuclear war. To remember Hiroshima is to commit oneself to peace. Since my deeper dive into the question, I have yet to encounter a cogent moral justification for the bomb. Most arguments offered, including those offered by me in the past, are grounded in consequentialism, the idea that the morality of an action is to be judged solely by its consequences. I have found such reasoning to be inadequate, inconsistent, and incompatible with authentic human love. If we approached every moral question through a consequentialist lens, each man using his own beneficiary status as his metric for right and wrong, the world would be chaos. Does the world seem like it's in good order now? Imagine chaos. It is my sincere hope that the leaders of our global village will someday possess the wisdom and humility to regard every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants as crimes against God and man which merit firm and unequivocal condemnation. Regardless of what terrible violence humanity may yet inflict on itself before we're all shuffled off this mortal coil for good, I will do my best to preach and to practice the words and example of Father Zabelka, who asked for forgiveness from the Hibukushas, the Japanese survivors of the atomic bombings. That is the first step of reconciliation, admission of guilt and forgiveness. Pray to God that others will find this way to peace. On July 16th, 1945, the United States has set off the world's first atomic explosion. Since that date, in 1945, the United States of America has conducted 42 test explosions. 
Atomic bombs today are more than 25 times as powerful as the weapons with which the atomic age dawned, while hydrogen weapons are in the ranges of millions of tons of TNT equivalent. Today, the United States stockpile of atomic weapons, which of course increases daily, exceeds by many times the total equivalent of the total of all bombs and all shells that came from every plane and every gun in every theater war in all of the years of World War II. A single air group, whether afloat or land-based, can now deliver to any reachable target a destructive cargo exceeding in power all the bombs that fell on Britain in all of World War II. Against the dark background of the atomic bomb, the United States does not wish merely to present strength, but also the desire and the hope for peace. The coming months will be fraught with fateful decisions. In this assembly, in the capitals and military headquarters of the world, in the hearts of men everywhere, be they governed or governed, governors, may they be the decisions which will lead this world out of fear and into peace. To the making of these fateful decisions, the United States pledges before you, and therefore before the world, its determination to help solve the fearful atomic dilemma, to devote its entire heart and mind to find the way by which the miraculous inventiveness of man shall not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life. If you enjoyed this unique bonus episode of Song and Story, please share it. Clearly, I think this is an important topic and that we must continue to discuss and consider the implications of our actions on future generations. I can't end this without giving a huge shout out and thank you to Julie Walsh. Julie is the host of More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. At my last minute request, Julie agreed to be the voice of Dorothy Day for this production. Like Dorothy, Julie has herself a beautiful voice and important things to say with it. Check out her podcast, More Than Politics, for more from her. My name is Kevin Heider. I thank you for listening, and I mean this when I say it. Peace be with you.